Hey everyone, back again for part two of like 10 million parts of Heidegger's Being in Time. So today we're just going to cover chapter two from the introduction. And that's it. And then we're going to move into part one and do three parts of that, then part two, then three parts of that. If you're new here, go check out part one. What the hell are you doing? Go do that. Go check out episode one. It'll be great. We'll have a great time. But for those of you uh, who are new here and you're still listening for whatever reason, like you just want to know about this chapter, hi, I'm David. I explain philosophical concepts and ideas and ways to make them accessible to you. So if you're new here, like, share, subscribe, you'll see videos I release every week. I'm trying. I'm really trying. I'm swamped. But uh, yeah, trying to do at least one a week. So you'll be able to see that, which will be awesome. If you like what I do, like, share, subscribe helps out a lot. You can help me out monetarily via Patreon or PayPal. No pressure to do that. You can find me on all the other platforms like Instagram and Twitter and TikTok and whatever. Uh, and all the, you know, look at the description for the video as a podcast, wherever you've gotten this as a podcast or on YouTube. You can see all the links and you'll also be able to see the kind of breakdown of the episodes that I'm doing for this book. Every single thing that I'm covering in each episode. So if you're just like, oh, I want to know about temporality and historicity or something, which will be like episode six, I think. We'll see. It'll be like episode six, I think. Uh, then you can just go click on that. So yeah, just click that. All the things. Do whatever you like. I hope you're well. I hope this is helpful to you. And tell me what you think. I mean, I love it when you comment. I love getting to see how people contribute to these discussions. And tell me how I'm wrong when I am wrong. Uh, it helps me learn, and then I can pin the comment. Everyone can laugh at me. And we can all learn together. Wouldn't that be great? I don't have the time to respond to everyone's comments um, because it's I can't. But I read them all, and uh, you're all very smart. And um, yeah. So yeah, let's jump into chapter two from the introduction here, titled The Double Task in Working Out the Question of Being. That is the method of the investigation and its outline. So we are still only setting the foundations here. And as we will see throughout the course of this book, this book is entirely just setting out the foundations. And at some point, Heidegger kind of becomes aware of that. And the version I'm reading, it's like, it's the Joan Stamba. I think that's how you pronounce their last name, uh, version. But then there's also like an editor who like randomly inserts themselves and like comments at certain points with like one word like responses with a little asterisk and like what are you doing why are you in here but anyways <laughs> i don't know what whatever this entire book feels like setting down the foundation for the question of being which is valuable in itself even if it leads to heidegger not actually solving the question that he sought out to solve so what is the method of investigation and its outline? Well, he starts out here by saying that Dasein must be immediately graspable for us ontically in our existing in the world, but it is removed from us ontologically. So we know that things exist, right? Therefore, we know that there's some kind of impetus behind their being, some kind of like driving force in being. And by posing this question, we are revealing the very capacity of being to be reflective, being to have a drive to actually be in the world, kind of movement itself. Uh, what, you know, eventually 
toward the very end, he's going to invoke Hegel to talk about spirit. And I think that there are some resonances between the idea of spirit and what he's talking about here as Dasein, even though there are some there are some fundamental differences. But I'll explain everything you need to know about that when we get there, like part or episode eight. So don't worry about that. So Dasein grasps its own being through the world. As I said last time, it's important that we don't bracket off the world for Heidegger. In fact, that is central. He is primarily concerned with the world as a foray, as an entry point to this deeper investigation into being, something that exists underneath the world as a fundamental ontology. And if you don't know what that means, go check out part one. Because you you got to know what that means if you're going to get this. <laughs> Otherwise, you're going to struggle. So Dasein grasps his own being through the world as what is immediately present. So in Heidegger's words, the way the world is understood is ontologically reflected back upon the interpretation of Dasein. So by understanding the world and the possibility of creating a world and worlds, as we shall see, there is... It's not really a singular world. It's more like part and parcel of Dasein is its capacity to create worlds and actually conflict with other worlds. So in that, by looking at the world, we open up that possibility to interpret Dasein. It reflects back upon the interpretation of Dasein itself. So insofar as Dasein includes the question of being, because Dasein is the being that contemplates being that reflects upon it insofar as Dasein includes the question of being to interpret it is to show itself to itself in its own terms in Heidegger's words so before unveiling Dasein's ontological structure we must first perform the preliminary task of identifying Dasein's being which is temporality which is something I mean from the title being in time temporality and Dasein go hand in hand. Temporality is the condition or is the, I guess, um, the horizon, <laughs> to use this word in the English translation, the horizon of Dasein itself. Everything exists in time. The same with Dasein. And that is for a non-spatial being like Dasein. Dasein, like, being itself the very fundamental ontology does not exist in a space. It's not like we can be like, oh, it's over there. It is a non-spatial driver for being to occur. But in that, we are implying some degree of temporality. Something has happened in time, but not in space for Heidegger, which I will, as we go on, I will be critical of. But in any case... It's important to grasp right off the bat that in that way, being and temporality are intimately connected. Kant says something very similar in the Critique of Pure Reason. But what I will say now as well, and I'm going to say it because <laughs> it, it only comes up later, or at least it's developed later, is that there's something else to attach to being. And that is not just temporality, but also care for Heidegger. This is the trinity of being, where you have being, in at least reflecting upon it, you have being, temporality, 
and care. They go hand in hand. That is because, as I, I already explained it with temporality, it has to exist in time. But care is the condition upon which it is possible to create worlds. If there was not a care, if beings just sprouted up and just existed of their own accord, satisfying their own immediate needs in every individual moment, we would not be able to create worlds. We wouldn't be able to create monuments. We wouldn't be able to create culture and community. It would just be like, there would be no being itself. To be means to be with. You cannot be in isolation. So there is a communal component here. Now, he's not going to get into all of that now, but just so that you know, the trinity here is being, temporality, and care. So this book could have been titled Being, Time, and Care, which would have, would have been a nice, it would have been a nice title, I think. So Dasein understands being in time. That is, you cannot exist outside of time. This is because being in time serves as a criterion for separating the regions of being. The problems, he continues, of all ontology are rooted in the phenomenon of time. Being from a pre-ontological state or from a pre-existential, existing in the world state, can only have moved from that state into this one through time. It has gone from non-spatiality and then into space, which he'll eventually discredit and say that, we, you know, world-making is the process of despatializing, de-distancing. You come from non-space into space. But what remains consistent between both is that there has been the passage of time. So being in all of its different states exists in time. And this is how we can understand its modifications, its derivations. It's different forms. But like, the, it just, it just don't, doesn't make sense to me. Because how can you imply that there's some degree of transformation in time unless you're according that to a transformation in space? That is, I mean, that's how we see time, right? We don't see time out there. Time is something that we imbue upon certain things to make sense of their changing in space. When a train moves along a train track, it's not like we are just seeing a compilation of different uh, spaces that we are unable to string together. It is our stringing them together that we are able to make sense of time, that is, a train moving in such a way, along uh, as a function of time. So being is only understood in time with all its modifications and derivations for uh, Heidegger. So historicity not to be confused with world history, and we're going to talk about this a lot more toward the end, is the temporal mode of being of Dasein. Dasein, as connected with temporality, provides the condition for us as humans to have an engagement with time and history, to be able to create like clocks and then organize ourselves around time. Heidegger says that this, this comes from Dasein's innate connection to temporality, which allows us to then birth things like past, present, and future. So historicity, he says, is the constitution of being of the occurrence of Dasein. That is, its movements imply some degree of transformation, and therefore 
open up this possibility of grappling with things as having transformed in time and therefore having a kind of history, having a kind of story, a narrative. Whether or not this is natural or this is, uh, I, I guess, a characteristic of Dasein itself, who knows? Or if it's something that we're, we just imbue upon Dasein, who knows? But in any case, I think that it's accurate. Nothing can exist outside of time. My only problem is that I also think, because I'm a dirty Kantian, everything exists in space, too. You can't exist outside of space, at least I don't think. That'd be weird. How do you do that? But, yeah. So Dasein is always attuned to its own past. It knows where it's come from. It knows that it comes from this fundamental ontology, and we are kind of aware of it, too. As we pose this question of being, as we established last time, to even pose the question implies that we have some degree of knowledge about the thing itself, even if that knowledge is not satisfactory at all. We can still speculate its existence. Like with Kant, in the Critique of Pure Reason, he says that in his distinction between the phenomenon and the noumenon, he says that in the world, you know, we can all see things. Like if we, if we are using sight or touch things and, you know, we can engage with things in the world. However, all of our experiences of a chair or table might be totally different because that chair or table, we don't engage with it in itself. We accrue sense data about that thing that we get through our senses and that our brains transform into like an image in our minds. And it's just like when we touch a chair, we are touching our body's possible ability to actually grasp that chair. When we see a chair, we are only reckoning with our eyes' ability to see that chair. So if we had, if we were another creature, like with different eyes, different brains, how would we see the chair differently? Kant asks us, or says that then therefore, the true nature of the chair, what he calls the noumenon, or the true nature of anything, is, is ungraspable to us. There is, there, it, we can speculate that it's there, but we'll never know what it is because we are always only filtering our understanding of it through our senses. Very much, Heidegger is very much saying the same thing about uh, Dasein itself. That is, this being that is ungraspable to us, but we can speculate that it's there. You know, we can, we can opine that it is there. We can guess it's there. Heidegger is interested in pursuing Dasein through the prism of the everyday. So I said last time, he doesn't want to bracket off the world. He's going to talk about the most mundane stuff, using a hammer or, or car uh, signal lights. He'll, he's going to talk about car signal lights. It's like what you have this like amazing philosophical treatise celebrated in the history of philosophy, at least for the past hundred years. And <laughs> it's, it's like, he's going to talk about turn signals. <laughs> and it's like, what? It'll become clear as we go on, though. So he wants to look at Dasein or understand it or pursue it through the prism of the everyday by looking at the everyday because it is there where we see Dasein being entangled with the world. Dasein is being part of the world. However, there is a risk for Dasein here, and that is its appropriation by tradition that uproots the historicity of Dasein to such a degree that it only takes an interest in the manifold of possibility or of possible um, manifestations of Dasein, its directions and standpoints of philosophizing in the most remote, strangest cultures, 
and with this interest tries to veil its own groundlessness. So if we just ignore Dasein and its attachment to fundamental ontology and are just purely concerned with it ontically, like in the world, in its factual manifestation, we risk just treating it as a series of like nows instead of grappling with it in its history, grappling with it in its movement from non-being or from the ground of being into the outward expression of being in, in terms of life as is like a human life existing in the world. And there have been many examples of this uh, within the history of philosophy of people, of thinkers who have glossed over Dasein's history and instead of focused on its just like immediate manifestation or presence. So this necessitates an interrogation of the previous and current efforts, essentially to understand Dasein and those that are, I guess, showered in their own traditions and unable to see outside of that. So, for example, Hegel's reduction of being to material, materiality or spirit. Spirit is what, he's, what he calls it. If anyone's read the phenomenology of spirit, you'd know uh, that that I mean, what a mysterious book. But what essentially Hegel is doing is not trying to define what spirit is or to illustrate it. He looks at all of these different parts of the world and human nature or human beings, human human relationships, human communication, and it kind of becomes apparent at the end that spirit is part and parcel of the very movement of history itself and progress itself of humans embracing the capacity for self-reflection as a motive or as a driving factor behind transformation and movement. And that is what spirit is. There is no one single definition or illustration we can provide of spirit. But in doing so, he it's very much concerned with just its outward expression existing in the world. So while the term spirit or geist uh, for Hegel is like, referring to a metaphysical thing like there's no like physical spirit in any case he's only concerned with it or primarily concerned with it as it exists and as it manifests in the world so heidegger's like well that we're going to be limited there because we are just going to we, we aren't going to take it we'd be able to take it any further and then heidegger says the similar a similar thing about uh descartes uh cogito when Descartes says, I think, therefore I am, he locates, I guess, being within thinking itself as like just a, a physical, almost like a physical act in the world that we can do and then and then claim to have found being. Heidegger's like, whoa, there's so much more to it than that. Like, let's not let's not pretend as though we've solved this problem uh, just by doing that. All of this contributes to viewing being in its groundlessness it kind of takes it away from itself refuses to acknowledge its, acknowledge its history where it has come from so to proceed we must destroy traditional content of ancient ontology which doesn't mean for heidegger to do away with it completely but to find the positive elements and preserve them that is attachment to the world you know, like I said, he's not trying to bracket off the world. He's not saying everything Hegel did was wrong. It's just a starting point. 
or what Descartes did or anything. To find its attachment to the world, historicity of Dasein, and temporality. So his big focus is Kant, though. So he's going to talk about Hegel toward the end, but his big enemy here is Kant. Uh, and that is because he's totally indebted to Kant. I think in a lot of, maybe in more ways than he's willing to admit in this book. I know he has all his lectures on uh, Kant that are published. I'm, I don't think I'm ever going to read them. Uh, if, let's just, okay. We're already in part two, so there's probably 10% of the listeners of part one. If, how about this? How about this? If this video on YouTube gets 5,000 likes, I will cover Heidegger's, all, all of his lectures on Kant. I will do that. That's my promise to you. If this gets 5,000 likes, which won't happen, so uh, this, I'm doing this deliberately. But if it happened too, then yeah. He's going after Kant here. And that is because he's totally indebted to Kant, but also wants to distance himself from Kant. So he believed that Kant uh, essentially ignored, that is, ignored the question of being, and also uh, failed to account for Dasein as the preliminary ontological analytic of the subjectivity of the subject. So if you read Kant's critiques, and I think that this, I think that this is a totally fair critique, uh, Heidegger's like, well, Kant just kind of treats all humans as these, these like subjects who just experience the world. Like we are just kind of passive recipients of the world. And through that, we can actually learn a lot about the nature of experience itself. And then maybe make some, infer some things about moral judgment, about uh, aesthetic beauty, about the nature of beginnings and endings or means to an end. But in all of this, Kant just kind of takes for granted the, the subjectivity of the subject or the being of being. He doesn't really question what it means to be in the world. What is, what makes it possible for us to even have this initial experience of the world? It's almost like Kant is, as weird as it's going to say, is, a, is kind of secular about it. If you, if you read the uh, critique of pure reason he starts it out by like like at the very beginning there's this very big indebtedness love letter to god and and everything but kant is like not at all interested in just like fanciful explanations for the nature of being itself whereas like you know other people like kierkegaard or anyone <laughs> so many other ones are just like oh well it's in scripture so that's how we know essentially kant's not doing that Kant, Kierkegaard's later, but in any case, Kant, you know, he's he's much more interested in trying to, what is he trying to do? He's trying to explore what experience or what looking at experience can tell us about the nature of the world, the nature of the divine, if there, if there is something like that, and um, what it means to be a moral being in the world. So Heidegger is dissatisfied with that because it totally glosses over the question of being itself. So for Heidegger, Kant's fear of ontology led him to just postulate human capacities of perception and judgment without understanding how or why, which is the topic of the three critiques, is to be like, what can we learn from experience 
that will tell us about judgment, that will tell us about morality or anything like that. Tell us about God even. Tell us about the nature of the universe, you know? It, uh, the books are great. Kant submits to a traditionalist view then of time as something that is just mysteriously conjured up in the mind. And so the connection between time and the I think, as we see in like Descartes, who Heidegger says Kant dogmatically drew from, remains obscure. Okay, so what the hell does that mean? What, what Heidegger is saying here is that within Kant's critique of pure reason, if you, if you read that, he starts it out, one of the first chapters is called The Transcendental Aesthetic, Aesthetic, in which Kant says that the first thing that we must know about experience is that it happens within space and time. But he says this not to be like, oh, these are objective qualities of like the world out there. There's space that exists out there and time that exists out there. Instead, Kant qualifies that we can only know that these are objects of the mind. That is, to another creature, to another species, to another being, space and time might, might be totally different. There might be another thing that we don't even know about. But as humans, we have this capacity to grasp space and time. That is, it comes from our minds, not that it is out there. I, you know, there's a lot more to it than that. I've done so many episodes on Kant, if you're, if you're curious. The mind exists in time, whereas exteriority exists out in space. So when we, for example, conjure up an image of a chair in our minds, that chair, do it right now. Think about a chair in your mind. That chair is not taking up any space. It's taking up time. It exists in your mind in terms of time. So he makes this other connection here between the mind and time and the body and space. Your body exists in space. It can't not exist in space. So too does your mind, because your mind is part of your body. But in any case, with all of this, Heidegger's like, there is no connection here between actually establishing a kind of understanding of being and all of this other stuff you're saying, Kant. You're just saying that we are like these passive recipients of things in the world. We have this mysterious capacity to experience the world. But that doesn't actually tell us anything about the world, doesn't tell us anything about us, really. So with Descartes, we are given the thinking being as the inalienable quality of existence. So the I think, therefore, I am. However, Heidegger shows that this idea comes from ancient ontology. It wasn't totally new. In the Greeks, for example, being is exclusive to those present in the here and now, in terms of speech or logos. So he, th he uses this as a kind of connection to what Descartes would eventually say with the, the I think, therefore I am. But here, time is not thought about critically. It's just like assumed to be there. Like it's just, it's just, it's just there. Like with Kant, it's like, okay, well, we just have this capacity to experience time. It comes from in here. We, it's something that we imbue on the world in the way that we make sense of variations within the existence of things on earth and in our experiences. But that's as far as it'll go. Heidegger's like, is there not more that we can take from time or understand about time and its connection to being? Or temporality, I should say, and its connection to being. Now, to engage more fully with the question of philosophy, we have to account for phenomenology as comprised of the terms 
phenomenon and logos. So phenomenology, phenomenon, and logos. Phenomenology is a method of understanding things and perceptions of things in the world. Phenomenology is really the study of appearances, the study of things that we interact with in the world in ways that make sense to us as humans. This is why phenomenology kind of finds its roots in Kant. Maybe David Hume before it, before him, but like Kant says, okay, I see a chair, but that chair is as determined as me as that chair determines itself to me. That is because the way that I engage with the chair is filtered through my senses that effectively makes up what that chair is to me. And then across humans, we might have like similarities that are very, very close to one another because we all have the same, like the same kind of human structure in our consciousness, our senses and everything like that. Assuming that someone's using all five of their senses are able to use all five of their senses to do this. But this isn't telling us anything about the chair itself. Like if there were no humans present, what would the chair actually look like? And even in, in framing it like that, I'm also I'm already mediating it to something else, to another creature. We'll never know what the chair looks like to itself. Now, what the, what is the point of saying this? It is to acknowledge that then not only do we receive the world through our senses, we shape the world through our senses, through through our capacity to actually see it, how we see it, how we actually transform the world for our minds through our senses. Like our senses receive the world and our minds conjure up an image of what we think it looks like and feels like and tastes like in the world. So phenomenology is not only the study of appearances, but the study of our engagement within appearances and how we affect the world as much as the world affects us. We shape the world and it shapes us. There's a kind of giving and taking here. So a phenomenon from the Greek or from the Greeks is what shows itself, what is manifest, what exists in the world. So when showing itself, it is already revealing that it dabbles in semblance. It shows itself to us. It, it, it has some kind of, we, we have some kind of knowledge of it. We, we can engage with it. We can understand it. So semblance is also is to understand it. In experiencing it and seeing it, we, we are understanding it to some extent. We haven't given it like language yet at this level. We're just like receiving it. But in that receiving, we are understanding. So Heidegger contends that this is different from appearance. Appearance is of something visible that stands in for the unseen. So he uses the example, appearance of symptoms of an illness, for example. We aren't actually seeing the illness itself. A symptom is not the illness. The symptom is like the transformation of an illness into a manifest uh, symptom. And that's why like, the one, one of the difficult things within, within medicine is that many different diseases will produce the same symptoms. So you look at the symptoms and it's like, well, it could be this, it could be that. You know, there's so many different things it could be. And these are essentially signs for many possible uh, illnesses. So in appearance, there is something that shows itself, like a rash, for example, and something hidden, that which exists beneath it. So here, 
he's he's making the qualification between just understanding phenomenon or phenomenology as the study of appearance to the study of what is makes itself manifest to us. It is more engaging with the thing that is projecting itself to us than just with what we are uh, perceiving. So he qualifies that phenomena are never appearances, but every appearance is dependent upon phenomena. That thing that is making itself apparent to us does so in various appearances that our senses pick up and our brains transform into um, something that we can understand. What we are interested in is not just those, those appearances that come to us, but the very thing itself that is lending itself to us, projecting itself toward us. Mere appearance is that which never recollects that which brings it forth. That's why, like, in the, in the case of the illness and symptoms is perfect, right? We don't actually know if any of these symptoms point to a specific illness. It's only on further investigation that we are dealing with the thing underneath all the appearances. Which, like, I mean, this part of me is, like, the Kantian in me is like, how do you do that, though? How do you actually separate or distance yourself from the study of the appearances themselves. Like, how do you make the distinction between the phenomenon that you're interested in, that thing that exists beneath the appearances? Like, how can you claim to be able to even do that? So to deal with the quagmire of the phenomenon or phenomena, appearance, semblance, and mere appearance, we have to maintain phenomenon's role as self-showing and that this is not synonymous with phenomenology. So Kant's notions of space and time as forms of intuitions are thus revealed only as phenomena of phenomenology. So Kant's like, as I said earlier, Kant sets out to study or to understand space and time as the kind of grounding, the bedrock that makes experience possible. We only experience things in space and in time. So Heidegger's like, instead of then just being like, wait, you know, wipe your hands of it, we're good figured this out, Heidegger's like, we must only treat these as essentially signs or symptoms of something else. That very being that is seeing, or the things that uh, actually give us the capacity for space and time themselves. This is to go further than just being like, space and time, that's it, we're done. So now he turns to logos. So for a long time, logos was just defined as discourse like speech while discourse went undefined which is like logos it was like logos is just discourse but no one asked what discourse is speech like what is speech like what is what are the beings that actually you know participate in speech it would go on forever so the immediate problem is that logos has been associated with so many other practices like judgment reason concept etc and this is um, you know we can turn to Derrida to grapple with this more. All of which discourse doesn't specifically imply. Discourse is just implying like just speech. But these other things that are attached to logos, like judgment, reason, logic, it's not really implied in the term discourse. When you think of the term discourse, you probably just think of people talking, right? You don't think of all these other things. So rather, we can think of logos as discourse, if we understand Logos to be the effort to make manifest what is being talked about in discourse, 
So discourse's logos makes something seen and is true when it unconceals something, when it reveals something. And it is false when it conceals something. So discourse can then be these other things. It can exist as logos when it reveals something, a truth. But it cannot be that if it is spreading lies, if it is concealing something, concealing a truth. So this truth is different than the truth found in perception, like the colors I see or the sounds that I hear, which are, you know, they're entirely subjective. Who knows if everyone is seeing them the same way? Instead, Logos is true, maybe more true, in that it reveals straightforwardly. It also does so as a ground or provides a base, a rationale for witnessing itself. And it relates things to one another. It unites things. And this, is, this will be the grounding for the creation of world itself. Discourse, the engagement with others, will set up the very foundations for unconcealing to occur, for things to become apparent to others, to be revealed and then possibly worked on, to be, to be cared for, to help create a world, to create relationships, to create community which we must have to, to exist. If we don't, we're kind of screwed. So to return to phenomenology then, he points to the way that the Greeks use it to mean to let what shows itself be seen from itself, just as it shows itself from itself. So not just being like, oh, the appearances uh, are just transformed by me in my mind, and then I imbue some kind of identity upon the thing that is showing itself to me as Kant would say, where Kant is like, it's all in our minds. Like our minds are the ones that create this world. Heidegger's like, no, well, there's still like something there in the very understanding of a thing being revealed. And in doing so, we can understand that there is that possible engagement with that thing. Similarly with being itself. What is this creature I am or this thing that is even able to see to transform that world into what makes sense to me. So if phenomenology just, as I said at the outset here, just contented itself with being the study of appearances, it would, it would be like totally, it will miss out on its intrinsic capacity to engage with self-showing. And what that means for something to show itself, this reveals that things can be true or not for uh, Heidegger. That is, the self-showing is the being of all beings that births the possibility to have phenomena at all, to have appearances at all. So he says that ontology is possible only as phenomenology. That is, we can find the true essence of the thing in its ontological identity in our reckoning with the very capacity to engage with appearance as an opening up of self-showing of a thing unconcealing itself, revealing itself to us. So therefore, we can do that with being, with, with like the fundamental ontology of being that we are seeing or that we see in the real world as appearances, as manifestations of that being. So we know that there is a thing revealing itself to us. This is why we are able to then have a fundamental base upon which to then ask the question about being. Like the investigator, like a, like a you know, detective 
has to have some like impetus behind conducting the investigation, like a crime or like a uh, some kind of whatever. Like there is something there. And if we just treat it as appearance or say that, oh, it's all in our minds and we're just creating this thing, we're totally ignoring all of the other factors here, everything else that is going on. So deep down, though, perhaps we've always known that phenomenology has this ability because it exists. Like we, we, like we have this study. If phenomenology was just about things as they are, it, would, it wouldn't be necessary. But because we know things can be concealed and revealed, we know that there's something else going on here. There is a kind of truth to be found. Things can be concealed if they haven't yet been discovered or have been hidden. So where does Dasein really fit in all of this? Phenomenology of Dasein takes on appearance of an interpreter or someone conducting hermeneutics, that is studying, investigating, uh, imbuing some kind of interpretation, performing an interpretation on the world and on things. The phenomenon of Dasein is interpretation, is hermeneutics. In Heidegger's, Heidegger's words, through which the proper meaning of being and the basic structures of the very being of Dasein are made known, are made known, are made known to the understanding of being that belongs to Dasein itself. So we, in the act of interpreting, we are revealing that there is that, we, we are that being seeing being. Even if we're only seeing the clues of it, it's like manifestations. Instead of the thing itself that is still, it's ungraspable. He, he's very firm about that. It is ungraspable. Doesn't mean it's not there. Doesn't mean we can't still ask about it. So in a sense, we must self-interpret. And that's part of the process here. Dasein is the being concerned with being. And when we investigate it, we are looking at ourselves as the being concerned with being concerned with being. So in Heidegger's, Heidegger's words, being and its structure transcend every being and every possible existence, determination of a being. So and is an example of radical individuation as it transcends everything. He continues, Phenomenolog phenomenological truth, disclosedness of being, it, that is a revealing of itself, a revealing of a being, its disclosedness, Phenomenolog phenomenological truth as the disclosedness of being is veritas transcendentalis, or it's truthful, transcendent truth. So then he concludes here by just saying it, it, this concludes the intro and it's like we, we had to set up all the, all these things it's going to get real good soon we're going to have part one and then part two he wanted to write uh like the next volume would have been about the phenomenological destruction of history of ontology probably looking at all the different approaches like theories of surplus value like marx's kind of unfinished thing uh but he never did it and I, I don't know, I, I'm not, I don't know the whole history of Heidegger and this book. If anyone knows more about it, I'd love to know. Uh, but yeah, so we just have this like one volume with parts one and part two. So next time we're going to continue with part one and cover chapters one and two from part one. And then episode four will cover chapters three and four. Part five will cover chapters five and six. And then that will wrap up part one. 
So each episode of part one that I do, it'll be three episodes. Each one covers two chapters, one, two, three, four, five, six. And then the same thing for part two. I'm going to cover chapters one, two, three, four, five, six across three episodes. So should be easy enough to follow in that way. But yeah, let me know what you think. Anything I got wrong, anything I excluded, I'd love to hear about it. Um, Y'all always have good insight in the comments. I'd love to read everything you have to say. But yeah, tell me what you think. Like, do you agree with Heidegger? Do you not? You agree with me? Am I too harsh? I don't know. I felt like I've, I've dialed back my initial kind of criticisms. They'll keep flaring up because I'm, I'm like that. But yeah, on that note, I hope you're all well. I'll see you later. Take care.